journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavua Tov, Shavua Tov, and Chag Sameach. Today is the 15th of Shvat. It is a well-known holiday today. It is called Tubi Shvat, and uh, today is the new year for the trees, and it is a lovely small festival where we go about tasting the the fruit that belongs to the land of Israel, um, and of course we make an effort to try and make our planet a little bit more greener. Um, so that is the story with Tobishvat, and I would love to discuss a lot of stuff with you, but um, we are going to be talking Chumash instead. We are going to still be travailing and traverse traversing the book of the Bible. We are in the book of Exodus. And we are on chapter 2. Finished up chapter 1. And just as a pricey to get everybody up to speed, chapter 1 described how the Jews got enslaved. And we noted that in their slave, in, in their enslavement, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over um, many years. But as time progressed, the Jews found themselves stripped of their rights, enslaved, and life was absolutely torturous to the point where Pharaoh, in his insanity, in understanding through his occults, occultists, that there was a redeemer that was going to be born, went with the crazy, crazy notion to drown every single baby boy into the Nile because he did not want the redeemer, um, which his magicians had told him was going to um, to be connected to water. So he went and started infanticide, um, uh, really, really, really cruel. He made the Jewish lives very, very difficult, and that's where we are going to pick up. So if you are at home, you may pick up a chumash. We are on Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. We are now going to talk about the birth of Moses. How did the birth of Moses come about? Right. Vayelech ish mi beit Levi. So a man of the house of Levi went, vayikach et bat Levi. And he married a daughter of Levi. So here we're talking about none other than a man by the name of Amram. Amram was the son of Kahat. Um, Kahat was a son of Levi, the brother, the one of the 12 tribes. So he was a grandson of Levi. And who did he go and uh, um, marry? He married Yochevet, who was a daughter of Levi. So ostensibly, as I said before, lo- uh, last week, an aunt married a nephew. Yep. An aunt married a nephew. Um an, a marriage that is not allowed by Torah law, but the Torah wasn't given yet. And so this ma- uh, this marriage was, in fact, sanctioned. Now, Amram was a leader of the Jewish people. And when Pharaoh came and he decreed that all the Jewish babies had to be cast into the Nile, Amram went and said, look, the, ch- the, the Jews are now having children in vain. And the children are going to be drowned anyway. So what he decided to do was he decided to divorce 
his wife. Now, if you recall last, last, um, last week, we spoke about the fact that they already had two children. They had Miriam and Aharon. So he divorces his wife and because he was a leader of the Jewish people and people like looked up to him and he set an example, okay, everybody else said, well, if Amram is divorcing his wife and not bringing any more babies into this world, then we too are going to divorce our wives because, yes, we agree, it's very, very cruel to bring babies into the world and then have them thrown in the river Nile. Now, there's a few conflicting reports as to what actually really happened. Some, Mepharashim, some um, explanations say that Yocheved was already pregnant. And what Amram was trying to do is that if he divorced her, it would be easier for her to hide the child when it was born because no Egyptian would go suspect that a, um, a divorced uh, woman would be pregnant and they would ignore. Others went and said, no, it was a legitimate thing. He decided to divorce his wife because he could not bear the idea to bring back, to bring, to bring children into this world and have them killed by Pharaoh. Now, Miriam, who was the oldest and was very, very wise, both Miriam and Aaron were born as a prophetess and prophet already. She came up to her father Amram and said the following. She said, Dad, your decree is worse than that of Pharaoh. Why? Because we know that Pharaoh's decree was that all Jewish boys will be killed. You, by divorcing from mom, are decreeing that all Jews will be bereft of both sons and daughters. Now, Pharaoh is a wicked man, and it's unlikely that his decree will stand forever and ever. But you, father, you're a tzaddik, you're a saint, and when you make a decree, it's going to be fulfilled. So you can't do what you're doing. Furthermore, she argued, Pharaoh is only doing evil in this world. Um, so while, yes, the, the babies were being murdered, they still moved on to the world to come and they had a portion in the world to come for being killed for being a Jew. It's called dying al-Kiddush Hashem. But you, Father, she argued, your decree even deprives children for the world to come because if a child is never born, how can they ever experience or need the world to come? So she argued all of this with her father and she said, you have to remarry mom because you, the two of you, are destined to give birth to a son who will set the Jewish people free. Now, we said she was six years old. What an incredible argument for a six-year-old. But it had a profound uh, impression on Abram and uh, he remarried Yochevet. And because he remarried Yocheved, what happened was all the other Jewish people married Yocheved as well. So that's, that's that part of the story. The one other small um, idea that I want to bring up before the break is that Yocheved, as we know, was the last Jew, was the Jewess that was born at the border of um, 
between Egypt and Israel when they were crossing into Egypt, Yaakov and his sons. How many years had passed until this point in time where we're telling the story? Believe it or not, 130 years old. Now, we are told that she miraculously remained youthful. She was as beautiful as a 15-year-old girl. And what happened was is they set up a whole new chuppah. Miriam and Aaron were present at their parents' remarriage. They danced before her. And they were very, very excited because they knew now their reunion would bring about the birth of a son that would set the Jewish people free. And we are told that as the, this pregnancy advanced, Yochevet glowed with happiness. In fact, in Tehillim, we have a verse that says, Aim habanim smecha, that a mother of children rejoices. And, um, this is actually a a uh, a what a um, indication of Yochevet. She was a mother who would be very happy, for she brought into this world three incredibly strong and prophetic children. Now, one of the quick questions that I want to ask, and I'll answer after the break, is: We know that if we go back into the book of Genesis. When Sarah gave birth to a son at the age of 90, the Torah says it was a great miracle. Why, oh why, is it that when Yochevet now is going to give birth to a son at 130, which obviously should have been a much greater miracle, the Torah doesn't mention it at all. I'm going to leave you with that thought and you're going to let me know what it is that you think. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. We're talking Exodus and um, I asked the question just before the break. Why was Yochevitz giving birth at the age of 130, which was obviously a much greater miracle than Sarah giving birth at the age of 90? Why does the Torah not mention it at all? And really, this is a discussion about miracles. Um, and what we define as a miracle. And in short, really we can answer it as follows. Miracles are time and place dependent. Now, let's just take our modern day um, and the way that we live and how we communicate and uh, the electricity in the water, or maybe not in South Africa, the lack thereof, um, how it easily comes into our our, our homes. Let's take the example of our online delivery system from the various retail shopping uh, shopping centers. You know, if you went and showed somebody that 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and say, do you know that you can open up a device and you can order whatever you want, and within 60 minutes it's delivered to you, they'll go, don't be ridiculous. That's a miracle. It would be a miracle if that would happen. Why? Because the time and place in which that person found themselves, that wasn't what used to happen. Before, you used to have to go out into the field, and you used to have to cut down the wheat, and you used to have to put it through the mill, and you used to have to blanch the flour, then you have to bring the flour home, then you used to have to go collect the eggs and all of the stuff in order to make one loaf of bread. Today, I want bread. I'll just go on an app. And I will order. 
I will order it and it will be in, within an hour at my house. Look at the way that we communicate. Most of you who are listening as I remember times when we went overseas um, and when we wanted to tell people how we were doing, we would buy a postcard and we would quickly write out what our comings and goings were and put on a stamp and post it off and hope that it would get there by the time you came home from overseas. Today, you can enjoin anybody you want to be part of your virtual experience. They can be there and there in the place that you are just simply by connecting your phone. So what is a miracle? A miracle is something that goes beyond the confines of nature. And when something becomes natural, then it is not considered a miracle anymore. So this week, this idea, we can go and apply to the, uh, the question of Sarah and Yochevet. In the time of Sarah, it was unnatural for a 90-year-old woman to give birth to a healthy baby. It was completely unnatural, and everybody understood that it was a miracle. Yochevet, albeit the fact that she was even older, she was 130 years, we learned in the last few weeks about the miraculous nature of how the women were giving birth in Egypt. It was natural to fall pregnant. It was natural to give birth to six. It was natural to remain sterile and young and youthful and have the ability to look after such low, uh, large families. So that is why the Torah mentions that uh, Yochebet gave birth to Moshe at the age of 130. But meh, no big deal, because it had already become commonplace. Right, let's look at verse 2. Vatahar ha'isha, she does become pregnant. Vatayled ben, and she um, gives birth to a son. Vatere oto kitov hu, and she sees that he was very, he was good. And he hides, she hides him for three months. So the first thing is that just as Yochevet's pregnancy was easy, as all the rest of the women, so too was her childbirth. Now, just to understand the stature of Yochevet, we know that a suffering in childbirth um has been a curse since the time of creation. It's a result of the punishment of Eve's sin, of Chava's sin. Um, but certain uh, very, very saintly woman, um, somebody that we would call a tzedeket, a righteous woman, does not suffer. And Yochevet was one of those. Now, when Moshe is born, the entire house we are told in the Midrash, became filled with light. And Amram called Miriam, his sister Miriam, and he kissed her on the head. And the Midrash says, he said to her, my daughter, your prophecy has come true. Now, Yochevet, we are told in the verse, uh, she saw that he was good. Now you can kind of argue, of course every infant is beautiful in his mother's eyes, no matter how ugly that they are. 
Why does the Torah go and mention that he was good? Because every mom will say that their little kid is the, be- the most beautiful good thing around. The reason why she's mentioning it that is because Yochevet did not carry to full term. And she got very, very nervous that her premature son might not be viable. But when she gave birth and she saw that he indeed was good, meaning that he was fully developed, she decided she's going to do everything in her power to try and safeguard him. And so we're told that Miriam, his sister, called the child Tuvia. Tuvia means good, okay, meaning it's good. Why? Because Miriam understood that he was going to become the redeemer of Israel. Now, you're going to ask the question, I thought his name was Moshe, Moses. Yes, you're right, but you're going to have to hang on to understand who gave him the name Moshe. Miriam named him Tuvia. Now, the other reason why he was named Tuvia, good, was because um, Moshe landed up becoming the greatest of all the prophets. Now, just to give you a distinction, <clears throat> why Moses was known as the prophet of all prophets was that he was superior to all other prophets. What does that mean? Well, with all other prophets, when they received their vision and they prophesied, they would either and they would experience their vision through an angel or they would get it at night or when they got it, you would see that they trembled quite violently and it would be very traumatic for them or they would have the inability to be in a prophetic state all the time, only at specific times and uh, they, they would have to wait until they got that inspiration. Moses, on the other hand, could speak to God just like a person speaks to a friend, just exactly like I'm speaking to you. First of all, he would be able to get prophetic experiences during the day while he was wide awake. You would never see any fear of trembling taking, taking him over. You would see that he could speak to God whenever he wanted to, just like he was a, he was a member of the household. So that's why he was called Tovia because he was the prophet of all prophets. He didn't have any of the constrictions of a standard prophet. He was also called good because he had a good heart. He was always wanting to do good for other people. And as we will see, as we, as we make our way through not only the story of Exodus, but for the next 40 years after the Exodus, Moshe led the Jews with great patience, with a lot of understanding, and he was the most humble person, as we are told, in, uh, in Bamidbar that ever walked the face of the earth. So here we have this boy, Moshe, who was initially named Tubia. He was a great, a great saint. He was probably the greatest mystic that the world had ever known. And therefore, he was good in every respect, and no one has ever been as good as, as he was. Yochebed agreed to name her son Tovia because Yochebed, we are told in the Midrash, 
was an expert in the science of chiromancy, which is looking at a personality through the basis of lines on the palm. And when she looked at her new son's palm, she saw that he was destined to be a great prophet, that he was extremely intelligent, that he was perfect in every way. And so she too saw that he was good. And another two things of what made both mother and daughter name the child Tuvia. Number one, Moshe was born circumcised, which is a sign of great inner perfection. And that's why it says that the entire house filled up with light. If a child is born circumcised, it is a sign that the child is a very, very high soul. Just for those of you that are thinking, what happens if a child is born circumcised? Do they then not have a bris? They still have a bris. No, they don't have it in the same way, but there is a bit of blood drawing or blood letting. Um, he does receive a cut in order to have a, the symbolism of a bris. So this little boy is born and the entire house is filled with light. And the Midrash goes and tells us one other very interesting thing is that when he was but a few hours old, because he was such a great saint and such a great soul, he began to speak and he conversed with his mother and his father. So now Amram, Yochevet, Miriam and Aaron have a problem. What are they going to do with this young boy. So they decided they're going to hide him because he was premature. He was born at seven months, not at the full nine months. Now, just for us to understand this, um, we are actually told he wasn't, sorry, I take back, not at seven months, he was born at six months and one day. Now, how do we work this out? Well, if you go back into the verse, you'll see the word v'titzpanehu, and they hid him, shlosha yirachim, for three months. But we know very well that three months is not yirachim, it's called chadashim. Chadashim is the name for months. Now, yirachim are lunar months. So if we add up that he was concealed, for, uh, three months, two months were two months of 29 days and one of 30 days. It means that he was concealed for a total of 88 days. He was born on the 7th of Adar, okay, which was a Shabbat in the year 2368. If you want to know the Gregorian uh, calendar. He was born on January 31st, 1393, before the Common Era. So that is when he was born. So he was born premature, and they were able to hide him for a good three months until he became full term. Now, how did Pharaoh go about finding these Jewish boys? Well, Pharaoh had set up an elaborate system um, to try and discover Israelite babies. When they suspected 
that a Jewish mother had given birth to an, an uh, Israelite infant, infant, what they used to do is they would send Egyptian taskmasters, like investigators, and they would bring along an Egyptian baby. And they would bring that Egyptian baby into the house and they would pinch the poor baby. The Egyptian baby would cry. And as infants often do, what would happen is when one baby hears, hears the crying, the other baby starts crying. And this is how, uh, they, 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 they worked out if there was in fact a baby in the house. And unfortunately, when that happened, they would then go and tear the baby away from the parents and throw them into the, the Nile. Also, we are told that the Egyptians kept careful records of all Israelite pregnancies. They would try to ask friends. They would ask neighbors for any clue as to when a birth would occur. And they would try to ensure that they would be there at the time of birth. The miracle with Moses was that Yocheved gave birth at six months. She obviously was carrying pretty small. She was able to conceal the, her pregnancy until then. So she gave birth to the baby and she was able to hide the baby in a subterranean uh, cave until he was um, of, 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 of full weight and, and of, of a real baby. And so hiding him was really only a temporary measure. Um, because she could not, obviously, hide a kid in a cave forever and ever. And what we see, by the way, um, over over uh, here is that the three months in which Moses was kept actually has important significance in the dates. But having said that, we are now going to go and see what what would happen, what will happen with Moses um, now that he is full term and uh, she cannot hide him anymore. If you, by the way, have any questions, you may ask and I shall attempt to answer or even a comment. 34519 is our SMS line. 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. This is 101.9 High FM. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Verse 3, chapter 2. She could no longer hide him. So she took a box of gome. Gome is a flexible wood. And she, she chalked it in clay and pitch. She placed the boy in it. And she placed him in the bulrushes on the bank of the Nile. Let's understand uh, Moshe's little boat. Gome, as I said, is a flexible wood. It's a very, very durable one, and it doesn't split if it gets uh, like a hard knock, for example, if it, it gets hit by a stone. Um, so a flexible wood such as Gome would be able to withstand any knocks. It was also very light, but it wouldn't get damaged. 
So that was the first reason why she chose the wood called gome. The second is, is that she made air holes, we are told, inside the box so the baby would breathe. And in the inside, she lined the inside with clay. And on the outside, she covered it in tar so it would be waterproof. Now, in some ways, we can kind of like draw a comparison to the ark that was made by Noah, by Noah. Noah's ark was covered both on the inside and on the outside with tar. Why? Because in the circumstances of, of Noah, the waters of the flood were hot. They were turbulent. And if the ark had not been lined with the toughest pitch, eventually the, it would have got wet inside and it would have drowned. But here, the Nile flowed very gently, and she only had to worry about the outside being lined with tar. And also understand that the inside had to be lined with clay because the baby couldn't go and breathe the fumes of that, that, that horrible smelling tar. Other opinions hold that it, this gome was not a wood, but it in fact was a reed basket, but nevertheless, it was still waterproofed on the inside with tar and clay, um, and the outside of the basket was left rough, okay, so that it 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 um, it looked as if it was a bundle of reeds floating on the water. Now, when Yochevet placed the basket on the bank of the Nile. Um, she put it, where did we say? Where the willows grow. Um, and the reason, where the willows grew. And the reason why was because just you can imagine that along the shore where the reeds grew, it looked very much like sugarcane. So she knew that if she put him in between all of that, then he wouldn't, he wouldn't drift very far because he wouldn't be taken away by strong currents. And she knew then that that's all she could do, she had to then put her trust in God. The one thing she did do was that she asked her daughter Miriam, who was the prophetess, well, now what? What's going to be the fate of this little boy? And it said Miriam remained silent. She didn't say anything. Okay? And Yochebed got cross with Miriam and said, My daughter! Where is your prophecy now that we need it? But in truth, Miriam did not want to open up her mouth because what they actually were doing was that they were doing a mix-up. And let me explain. Yochevet was aware that the Egyptian astrologers had said that Israel's Redeemer would meet his end through water, which is true. 120 years later, Moses would hit the rock, not speak to the rock, and for that, he would die. But what she was doing right now was she was placing Moshe in the Nile because she hoped to confuse them and make them think that the Redeemer had already met his end. And then what would happen is that they would no longer search for him, they would rescind the decree to drown all the Jewish boys, and... Um, and she knew that as soon as she put Moshe in the water, they would assume that he had drowned. Now, 
what happens is obviously Miriam is taking huge responsibility for this whole thing. She made her mother and father remarry. She prophesied that a redeemer would be born. So she was going to go and watch how things would unfold. So Miriam came down to the riverbank, but she watched from a distance. She wanted to see what would happen to him. She was curious to see how her prophecy would be fulfilled. Because she knew, she knew that this youngest brother of hers was going to be Israel's redeemer. Now, let's go back to the dates. Remember, we spoke about the fact that he was hidden for 88 days. He was born on the first of Adar. Now, we know that Adar is the month in the Jewish calendar that has can have, in a leap year, have two Adars. So, the first opinion was that he is born on the second Adar. So he's born on the seventh of Adar, Shani, the second Adar. The day that he was placed in the Nile was a very important date. It was the sixth of Sivan, May 27th, 1393 before the Common Era. What's so significant about the sixth of Nisan? It's Shavuot, the day the Torah was given. So, if you look from the 7th of Adar Shani, March 1st, until the 6th of 7, May 27th, it's exactly three lunar months. Another opinion says that Moshe was placed in the Nile on the 21st of Nisan, okay, um, which is the day where the, the Red Sea was destined to be split. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Adel Kozilski, and you've got to love the world of technology. Sometimes we fall off the planet, but I'm back on again. Thank you. So let's just finish up our idea. So Rabbi Acha ben Hanina shouted out, the one who's destined to receive the Torah on this, the sixth day of Sivan now lies in mortal danger. So whether he was the one that was going to split the Red Sea or he was the one that was going to give us the Torah, it said there was an absolute outroar of the angels. Um, and uh, God, God took note of that. God did take note of that because we're going to go and see what actually happens um, and how he, in fact, is is saved. But just to understand that the trick that Yocheved did actually worked. As he was put on in the Nile, the Egyptian magicians felt suddenly a change in the mystical matrix because it seemed that now the Redeemer of Israel was in the water. Nobody questioned it further. Nobody decided to analyze the phenomenon further. And they immediately went to Pharaoh. They said, there's been a change. Israel's redeemer is gone. We no longer see signs of his power. And with that, Pharaoh immediately gave orders to retract his decree that all infant boys needed to be drowned. Finished. It went, it went, it, 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 it was taken away. Now, Miriam stood by the river for how long to see until what will happen to Moshe? Well, believe it or not, it was simply a quarter of an hour, 50 minutes, and the whole thing flipped over. I just want to add in one thing before we end off today, is that this trick that Yocheved did by 
doing something that resembles the curse or that which is to be decreed allows the decree to be annulled. So I just want to tell you very quickly a story in the Talmud. It says that once a litigant, uh, there was a litigant, and he was very, very upset with what verdict he had received from a great saint called Rabbah. And he cursed him, and he said, your chair should be overturned, meaning what he was meaning when he cursed him, that he should lose his position. But Rabbah's students, what did they do? They immediately went and took the physical chair of Rabbah, and they turned it upside down. And this was, in a sense, like they hoped that the curse would be fulfilled that way, and he no longer had to worry about the fact that he'd lose his um, position. Another time, a man cursed Rava, another great rabbi in the Talmud, that his ship should sink. Okay? Meaning, may, may, may your whole like, like existence go down the drain. So what did he do? His students immediately took his clothing and they soaked it in water to fulfill the curse. So that's what Yochevet did. Yochevet says, oh, you're saying that the, is, is the, the Jewish redeemer is going to drown? I'm going to drown him. I'm going to put him in the Nile. And so she, fulfilled the decree to a sufficient extent that in truth it never ever came to full force. And this was how Moshe, in fact, was saved. But for the nitty-gritty, you're going to have to tune again in next week, same time, same place. So until then, have a beautiful Shavuot Tov, a wonderful week ahead. This is Adel Kozilski, and I'm signing off for 101.9 High FM.